Welcome to Game Changing Leadership. In this podcast, we will highlight interesting profiles and hear their thoughts and experiences of game changers. What do they do differently and what can we learn from them? My name is Marlene Greva and with me I have my co-host Siri Bösche. We have touched upon several industries and verticals throughout our prior episodes. However, now we have the potential to dig down into the exciting yet quite myth-spun biotech industry. One might say that Vaxibody has gone opposite of the trends and become a game changer, as you have created your own entire platform and how to work with vaccines all together. We will in this episode dig deeper into what exactly Vaxibody is and explore if there are ways of working in biotech that other verticals can learn from. And with that, warm welcome to you, Agnete Fredriksen. Thank you. Chief Scientific Officer and founder of Vaxibody. We are truly excited to have you with us today, Agneta. And it sure isn't every day that we have the opportunity to have somebody in the room whose aim in life is to cure cancer. No less, no less. However, could you bring us back to the very start? What was your initial future state? Did you already have back then an idea of, of what success might look like? No, I think this this really came from a deep understanding in how the immune system works. And that's what we did during the master and uh, my PhD thesis. And then understanding that if you want to elicit an immune response, which is what you need with a vaccine. So you give something that comes from what makes you sick, either it's a virus or a pathogen, bacteria or cancer cell. Uh, you give that to the body in a form that does not make you sick, but that elicits the immune response so it can kill the virus or um, make sure that it's neutralized um, when you meet it real life uh, later on. Uh, but that happens through a sort of a sequential process in our body. And so we know that when the virus enters the cell, if you want to focus on the virus as an example, it comes into the cell, but then it needs to be recognized by certain cells that we call antigen presenting cells. It's a sort of myth spin, very important cells in our immune system. And these need to see the virus and they need to take it into the a specific cell and then present it further to the immune system. Um, that's very important for our antibody responses that you heard about and the T cell responses that you're also hearing more and more about these days. And these are the things that are responsible for fighting the virus. And what we did with Vaxibody is that we make sure that when we put this piece of the virus and the vaccine format into the body that we target these to the antigen presenting cells so it it works sort of like it's a people say it's a rocket or it's a magnet to these cells so we just make sure that this doesn't hand, uh, happen randomly we make sure that we uh, are optimizing the chance that the, that the vaccine is taken up by the most important cells of the immune system that leads to more rapid responses stronger responses more longer lasting responses and also broader uh, onset of, uh, of all the different arms of the immune system. Um, and that's the principle and that we can use whenever if it's a virus or a bacteria or a cancer antigen. Uh, we can use the same principle in order to make sure that immune system is triggered in the most optimal way. But did you know this when you started? Because it sounds so easy. We do this, we do that. But <laughs> did you really know that when you started that 
because it can't be easy. No, so so I think the principle has been known for for a number of years before I started to study really how uh, what kind of uh, systems needs to to uh, be elicited in your body in order to induce an immune response. But the problem with all these biological molecules is that they are really sensitive to any changes. So people work around in the lab and you know mutate something on purpose uh, to see if they can optimize it or change it or gather different um, responses from from different molecules into one molecule and that's obviously taken both long time you know technically how can you actually do that to to change a naturally occurring uh, protein into something that you want to have a specific effect and sometimes that just doesn't happen Uh, if you make one small change it all falls apart uh, so, so there was both this technological change that it's easier and easier to test and combine different genes and see if this gene has this uh, effect and this gene has this other effect, what happens if we combine them? Then it would be extremely nice. But most of the times this doesn't really work. It doesn't fall into the right molecule. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Um, and that that's where we were lucky <laughs> with the vaccine body molecule so that's a combination of it's actually three bigger but but four five smaller parts that we've taken the genes that would have the different uh, opportunities uh, to be optimal if they were combined um, and made that into one molecule so, um, so you're part. saying that it was just was it pure luck so obviously, you know more and more about how to do it, uh, but it also it's it's empirical in that sense that uh, you cannot really know before you've tried if it's possible or not. Uh, so, um, but bringing this opportunity to cure cancer with a solution specifically aimed at each and every one individual. That sounds to me a little bit more like sci-fi rather than science. <laughs> this is intriguing, but what what is that breakthrough that you have now compared to the others, if it is? Yeah, so, so first of all, what I explained so far is the platform technology. So it's a vaccine technology can be used for viruses, bacteria and cancer. But can I stop you? Like the technology, yeah. what is the, can you explain that technology <laughs> part in an easy way? Yeah, so... Uh, I can try. So we have a gene or a molecule that has a natural function that whenever you have inflammation somewhere, that uh, protein is being expressed and with the function of attracting these antigen presenting cells, because that's the time you really want your immune system to come to where you have an inflammation and start to clean it up. Uh, That molecule is one molecule we're using in our vaccines. So our vaccines, so the part of the virus, so the part from the cancer cells, we combine with this molecule. So when we use the vaccine and we inject the vaccine into patients, uh, that part of the cancer cell then will be connected directly to that part that normally attracts the immune system if you have an inflammation. So it really alerts the immune system instead of it's just the the cancer protein that you inject and you hope that the immune system reacts because you have a cancer protein somewhere in your body. What we did is really to make, to have a connection to this uh, protein that tells the immune system, come here, something is really happening. You need to be to wake up um, and see what's happening. And then um, there are multiple sort of... Uh, 
order of events that will happen afterwards because normally that um, that system then happens where you really have an inflammation. So you really trigger the immune system to take care of what we then have uh, carried on as the vaccine antigen. So that's sort of our platform. We combine different genes in principle into one molecule um, that awakens the immune system. And then you inject it. And then you inject it. But is that the breakthrough? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, that's, you know, the entire company. uh, And that's what we are most proud of. And this is the platform technology that we can use for multiple products. But we had, we, we, we took it, you know, to the far extreme kind of early with product number two, I would say. So we first made use the same platform technology for treating women with precancerous cervical lesions. So that's the women when you have an HPV infection and you're not able to fight it yourself and you get a lesion at the cervix. And sometimes you have to then go through this conization and if it's not treated, it will develop into cervical cancer. So that's when you have this pap smear technology that you, you go and take this test as a woman with uh, so a few years in between. Yeah, and the, and the girls have started to be vaccinated against it. Yes. And Is then, it that vaccine or do you do it off like when so the, the treatment? Yeah, uh, so the, the vaccine that these younger girls, they have to get that vaccine before they meet the HPV virus. Uh, if you get it after you have attracted this, uh, uh, the virus, then uh, it's not that uh, efficacious. But our vaccine is triggering this part of the immune system that, that kills the cells that have been infected uh, already and take care of that and cleans, cleans it up afterwards. But then I think you want to go to where, you know, where we moved for the second product. And that was in 2015. And the entire world was sort of, I mean, uh, cancer immunotherapy had a breakthrough from 2011. That really immune system can be maybe the most efficacious way of treating cancer. And before that, people really didn't believe (laughs) in using the immune system in that regard. And we also understood because you could all of a sudden map all the genes in patients rapidly. If you remember that sheep dolly took like 11 years and cost billions of dollars uh, to to map all the genes. But now we do that in, you know, a few days. And that gave the opportunity to understand that all the cancer patients, even though they have the same diagnosis, so they have lung cancer, all of them, uh, stage four, uh, the mutations in their cancer cells are completely different. It's individual how your cancer cells look like. They've changed. They all originated from lung cancer cell, but they look different. And the immune system recognizes what's foreign, so what has changed in your cancer cell compared to your healthy cells. And if you want, you know, to trigger that with a vaccine, you need to understand what the mutations exactly, how is your lung cancer cells, how, how have they changed? And that had happened and was sort of a revolution in the field in 2015 when people understood that let's um, map all the genes in exactly your cancer cells and let's make a medicine or a vaccine that presents exactly your mutations in the optimal way to the immune system. Was that a global sort of movement that let's, because we have this uh, sort of gene uh, map available, we can do this now. We can. And then everyone started... Yeah, so it was two companies that started 
just focusing on that uh, particular to make you know patient specific um, cancer new antigen vaccines. So we uh, moved away from one treatment for everyone to the possibility of individualizing yes. each treatment. Yeah. So we had like two key competitors that. Uh, was founded in the US at the moment and one with 55 million US dollars as a starting and the other with 102 million dollars as a starting and how we were sitting here have? like I think we had <laughs> you know I mean 2015 I know I I know we had used like five million euros of the investors money at that time point uh, in 2016 we raised another 220 million uh, Norwegians and that was aimed for this program um, but still you know that's nothing compared nothing to, compared to yeah. our competitors that makes me curious did you go out and get that money as well well no we did not try to get as much because that, that culture is completely different uh, so so there's much more high risk capital early stage in the US than in Europe so people would laugh but wouldn't they even look at you in, would you not make yourself available for them to look at you at that stage? Or? So actually, we did only target the Norwegian investors um, at that moment. So um, we had a good Retrospect, connection. Retrospect, would you have done that differently today? Would you have well, We did get enough money to get into the clinic. Uh, so it did work <laughs> nicely. And we were like five, six people. So so um, you know, I, I think we did it as rapid as we could. I think it's kind of, I am proud <laughs> afterwards to know that we were like five, six people. Uh, in 2015 and we had limited amount of funding but we had the technology and that's you know it was ambitious and was a bit bold to move into patient specific vaccines uh, because it's not just that you have to you know map the genes but you actually have to go through a complicated and regulated process to manufacture one vaccine per patient so currently we uh, for the first study we had uh, the vaccine being shipped in I think it's like seven different countries and several continents uh, for each patient um, and that has to be tracked so it's a lot of things we needed to set up that was not really you know vaccine technology it's a lot of logistics and we're the best friends of World Courier and uh, <laughs> but, th- but that brings me to so so your patients um, the people that you were treating they weren't in Norway where were they uh, so that was a study that we set up in Germany. Uh, both of two first studies was in Germany specifically. Uh, and now the, the third study is going on in, in six different European countries. Yeah. Why, why Germany? Why not Norway or Sweden? <laughs> or? So Germany was at that time point uh, both educated and open-minded for our kind of vaccine, genetically based vaccines, uh, which uh, you know now nobody really um, are scared of these anymore. RNA vaccines are the ones we're now receiving for coronavirus um, here in our countries. But it was new to many countries, uh, including Norway. Norway had not approved any DNA vaccine or genetically based vaccines uh, to move into the clinic at that time point. Uh, and being a small startup company, we need to, you know, do things as efficiently as possible. So so we cannot be the ones that try to break through uh, everything and get the regulators, uh, you know, safe and sound in Norway first when we can go to Germany where they have all the, had all the experience and, and already had a lot of studies ongoing so that, you know, what we brought to the table that was new for the regulators was the vaccine body technology 
uh, not the DNA basis that we're using. But could you just, because there's a lot now with um, the COVID vaccine that we talk about the, is it mRNA? And then you are talking about the uh, DNA. Can you just tell us what's the difference between those two? And what are sort of the, the obvious advantages with, with your way of doing it? Yeah, so actually they're quite similar. So it's like genetically based vaccines. So we're I mean, we have DNA in ourselves uh, and you have the DNA and then when you, that DNA is the reading frame in principle for our proteins, all the proteins. So the DNA, then it makes an intermediate, which is called RNA, mRNA, and which is then further made into proteins. So mRNA is just sort of an intermediate uh, reading frame uh, based on the DNA. Uh, so they're sort of skipping one step in how you make proteins when you make the mRNA vaccine compared to the DNA vaccine. So our DNA vaccine will be first made into mRNA and then into protein. In that respect, they're kind of similar. You can dictate, you can say whatever sequence you want it to be, uh, which is one of the reasons why these mRNA vaccines are able to be produced easily when you have the sequence of the virus. You can just use that sequence and make the RNA or the DNA in a very similar fashion. But mRNA is more complicated to manufacture. Uh, it's generally more unstable. Uh, you have to sort of encapsulate it into uh, a different formulation, liposomes, that will protect the RNA and can also to some extent help that it in, gets into your cells. But the DNA is much more stable, it's easier to produce, it's much more robust and cost-effective than the RNA molecules. So that's why we've used that uh, directly uh, and we can formulate it simply in, in PBS. You need to have something that is, you know, the RNA is regarded as a slightly more foreign than the DNA, which is helping to some extent to stimulate the immune system. Uh, but with the vaccine body technology, as I tried to explain earlier, with this sort of molecule that is targeting the optimal cells and making sure that you have this process being optimal, we can use the DNA and have really strong immune responses. Mm. So I've read somewhere that you believe that the DNA way or method of doing it has like all the uh, as many opportunities that there are out there. So can you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so, so, so you can, in principle, you sit on your computer and you write in some letters and then these can be synthesized. Uh, and that's sort of the, <clears throat> the template for your protein. So you can basically dictate what you want to have been produced. Not always these molecules will be, you know, folding correctly, etc. But in that way, it's sort of no limitations. You can make whatever and based on whatever new sequences are out there, new viruses, new bacteria, it's not really dependent on that. But can you cure all diseases with this, like in, in theory? In theory, in theory, uh, I would say at the time point, we believe yes. Uh, so you cannot necessarily cure everything with a vaccine alone. But in combination with other therapies, so we see that even in the cancer immunotherapy field, there are more and more combinations. There's something called a cancer immunotherapy cycle. There's sort of seven steps you need to be able to achieve in order to really, you know, cure cancer. And cancer vaccines is, is one of those very important steps. And sometimes the patient take care of the other six steps by 
by himself or by its immune system's abilities. And sometimes it needs help to, to also trigger all the other six steps that you need in really to have an efficacious response. Um, with with um, infectious diseases, it is normally easier uh, and a vaccine can do a lot by itself because also it's much more foreign. The entire virus or bacteria is foreign. When you have a cancer, you have your normal proteins and it's just certain parts that are foreign, which makes it a bit more difficult. But uh, it's not always like you see with the coronavirus vaccine that your, your primary suspect um, for a vaccine which is normally protein, and it's normally the protein that's on the surface of the virus um, that people tend to include into vaccines because then you, it's both vulnerable for these antibody responses and T-cell responses. Sometimes it takes more, like so with malaria, tuberculosis, even with influenza, it's only like 50% sort of protection every year. So, So in some cases you may need more than the easiest, uh, simple primary suspect vaccine antigen. But then again, we believe that Vaxibody has the ability to include multiple antigens um, into the same vaccine, um, which make it more and more efficacious. But I'm, I'm curious, because you said it all started with, with curing cancer. And that's a big job. Like, and you're, you're not done with that yet. But still, because of this COVID trend, you jump on that. Why did you do that? Was that because it was uh, a great opportunity commercial-wise or because you were curious or because you had to, because there was a, a responsibility you have as a scientist? No, so so um, two of those, I think. Uh, so one, we had uh, seen a kind of breakthrough results with our plat uh, platform technology. 2019 is maybe sort of a transforming year for us data-wise. And that led us to go into this strategy and say, yes, now it's time to expand. We always knew it was a platform. We just had to focus uh, on a few products and getting proof of concept and proof of principle. Now it was time to expand. Uh, and that happened before COVID. So it was like sort of the fall of 2019. And uh, so we had decided to move into infectious diseases before COVID-19. And we had also been able to attract uh, Gunstein Nordheim, which was the prior uh, director for vaccine sciences in SEPI. And he was supposed to start in Vaxibody 1st of April. Uh, he did <laughs> as well. But, you know, mid of March and everything happened. Um, uh, and we were supposed to have Gunstein Nordheim, which is, you know, a key expert in pandemics to lead our infectious disease initiative. Those two factors sort of came together. But also we do have over the years a lot of connections throughout the world and the entire world was upside down and, and people did know about our technology and the results. So all our friends around the world also asked us, are you not supposed to try um, and compete and, you know, contribute, not compete with your technology? And, and it felt also like we had to an obligation and nobody knew at that time point how difficult it would be. You know, whether these all players that tried with the first candidate antigen would be successful or whether, you know, the 10 first would fail and you would need something, you know, more innovative, more optimized like the Vaxibody technology can contribute. 
So, uh, so we still see that. We know we, we've done the results, but we were like one person when uh, first of April for infectious diseases. I think, you know, BioNTech, they were like thousand, Moderna, thousand, Pfizer, you know, several thousands. Um, so, so it's difficult to compete in time and also to keep with compete on, you know, risk capital. Uh, but we've seen with the results that we do um, replicate what we always known that our technology is more optimized, is better fit for pandemics than the first players. Uh, but we are, you know, a few months behind. Why don't you hire more people? <laughs> we hire all the time. <laughs> you know, it's we difficult to hire thousands. Yeah, but you touched upon that, the, <laughs> the sort of the access to resources and where those resources are globally. Mm-hmm. I have heard that you go by the term, well, we have to do it in a sort of a vaccine body quality <laughs> type of way. Uh, you can you can also explain to us what exactly that is. We, I think we, we heard a little bit about it in the beginning when she said, well, we were only six people, but... It was more than enough to do what we needed to do and make it uh, <laughs> yeah. proper. We didn't need more money. We didn't need more money. We didn't need <laughs> anything else. But uh, we had to have our time to make it uh, proper. Where do you find people and how do you select people to your company? Now we are. I mean, it's basically um, Norwegian-based people. But I think we have, oh, should have been updated. You know, the number of nationalities is pretty broad. Uh, and we have quite a few people that is moving to Oslo these days uh, to join join Maxibody also from abroad Uh, so we do search globally um, but most of our researchers are Norwegian or you know have come from from a different country but did their PhD or something in a postdoc in in Norway so we need to have their presence uh, here here in Norway but we have a lot of also management people um, and a Danish office. How does that work out for you? (laughs) Normally, those Danes need to to get on a plane every week back and forth, so it's basically their problem. But uh, but these days it's a bit challenging. I haven't seen the Danes since uh, October, uh, only on the screen. So so um, I do miss the Danes. <laughs> but does that stop you? Does it uh, slow you down in terms of sort of uh, moving forward? No, no. I mean, it's been extremely intense, and um, and since since the lockdown uh, for us, we had both you know the negotiation of the Genentech deal uh, on the on the fully personalized individualized cancer vaccine, which uh, so tell know, us about so that. That must have been amazing. Yeah. Is it the biggest <laughs> deal that has been done in biotech in Norway ever? We're talking. Is it six? 0.7 billion Norwegian kroners. Yeah, yeah. today. Yeah. Worth, yeah. Yes. And what's yeah. the company worth now? Uh, it's around 20 mm. billion Norwegian. Mm. Well, what does that do with you? Like, what the uh, first of all, do you ever go to bed and sort of lay down and think, oh my God, I'm proud of myself? <laughs> like, do you have time for that? And what, what the pressure with all these investors and everyone sort of going around now thinking that they will become very rich because you are going to save the world. Mm. The pressure. Yeah. How do you deal with that? It's a, it's, it's a huge pressure. But, you know, I think from the outside, it's a huge pressure on me as a person, I think. But, you know, going to work, we are 50 people uh, and yeah, distribute the pressure, pressure I think. Uh, and we're all working uh, towards the common goal and it feels it still feels like a family, uh, although we have a lot of new members since, uh, <laughs> since we closed down. Uh, but it's always been this spirit that I liked from the early start in academia. I felt it was sort of very individualized. I want to be the first author. So 
you should step aside. Uh, but but working in a, in a biotech company was um, is really this sort of common goal. We all want to move the projects forward. So so in that sense, uh, I feel it's a lot of collaboration, and it's a lot of collaboration outside the house as well. I mean, we have so many collaborators, and we do work together. So it's not just me. I think we all feel but sort of still, obligated. It was you that started it. Like you yeah. took the chance. Is it how many years ago? Uh, <laughs> 2007. So it's 13 years ago we founded the company. Mm. But the, let's let's segue on to, to leadership. And um, throughout these years, you have moved from being that uh, scientist who were really hands-on deck for all sort of parts of the process into becoming this person who is actually building the company and ensuring that uh, these guys have have great leadership and that you actually build that we culture mm-hmm. that you all need to be at the very best and the very front uh, frontier mm-hmm. have you done any reflections on what that leadership mean to you and how do you lead I think it's changed a bit over the years. Uh, so we were a family and really sort of flat structure. I've always been on purpose hiring people that are willing to challenge me and ch- challenge the, the system uh, and see if we can make it better, that have a logical sense of mind instead of following what's always been done before. And how do you do that? I think it's during the interview process you really see if they have drive. I've always been much more interested in whether they have drive and whether they want to you know, we'll let the ball fall in between two chairs or whether they will always be there to pick it up. That's been very important for me, much more important than, you know, whether they've done this particular experiment 10 times before. You can always learn that. But that sort of personality that takes responsibility and want to be part of the family and see the fun in in the progress has been very important. Do you have any particular questions that you ask in order to get that answer or to find out? Yeah, we always had this sort of, what would we do in this situation, etc. Yeah, but yeah, I think you, I mean, I also sense that with people. So robots can't take over the process of doing the entire interview process then? Well, they do now, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I know I had this grandmother interview process set up, uh, but I can't handle all of them <laughs> anymore. But we also, you know, uh, teach people. What do you mean people. by that grandmother so her is a grandfather principle, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's grandmother in my case. <laughs> what is that? What's no, the grandmother so principle? The people that report to me when they hire people, you know, they do the interviewing process first, but then they also have a grandmother interview with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> like approval the, process. <laughs> right. Sounds better with the grandfather, I think. At least no, if you say no. the Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, it seems to me like these uh, these guys that you're attracting is, um, they might be sort of like traders or cybersecurity experts. They're always somebody willing to pay the higher price for them. And we haven't, we're not done with the leadership part yet. But since we're into this uh, sort of recruitment and how do you attract and get the these people to stay in your organization because mm. Pfizer might have more money to provide them. Mm. What is it about you, your leadership, this family sort of sense of, of way that you're running this company? What is it that makes these people want to stay with you? Because I've, I've heard that you talked about uh, your staff being extremely loyal. Why is that, do you think? No, I think we do focus on having fun. I mean, it's always allowed, you're allowed 
people, you know. Um, usually we went to the restaurants and, and they wanted to, to close the doors <laughs> because we always, you know, we're, we're, we do have fun. We do celebrate all the, all the achievements. It's a bit more difficult now with, the, with teams. Uh, we still try uh, and see people. Um, and I think also that you alluded to the quality also stimulates people because we do always... So speed is very important in biotech. So it's much more agile than big pharma, which attracts someone that, you know, when you make a decision, it doesn't take, you know, six months until it's actually implemented. That's that's true with Vaxibody. And so that's one thing. But we we do take one extra step always if it goes out of the house. And that's also part of being able to challenge each other so that we make sure that whatever goes out from our door has a high quality that we are all proud of and i think also that makes people a bit proud and it makes that we you know we get good feedback from all the other collaborators we have abroad it's not like a human very rarely a human error or some didn't really bother to go back and see if it was the optimal uh, document to present or the data to present in a proper way. So I think people also feel proud of... Uh, so never underestimate the, the power of being proud. Yeah, maybe, mm. yeah. But what about your leadership? What do you sit with that you think are key enablers or have you reflected upon what type of leader you are? <laughs> well... I do like people challenging me. So that's one thing I, I don't think, at least not my closest, are very scared of, you know, um, challenging me and having open discussions. I think the best things come out of that. Uh, so so in that way, I'm very open for, for having these kind of discussions to see if we can move forward. And also try to be there for them. If they have an issue, I try to take care of that issue, even though it's late in the hours. Now I got this sort of email alert that says maybe you should consider not to send this email until tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. When Yeah, you can put that. That's a, that's a very good trick. You can, you can, you can write <laughs> it whenever you want, but you can send it to be auto-sent at <laughs> 07 or 8 or whatever good timing is. Um, do you, what leadership, what leaders globally do you look up to? Who inspires you? I'm inspired by those that are able to communicate their results in a way that is yeah, understandable and logical. I think at least in my field, it's so technical that people sometimes tend to be... Yes. They tend to be very sort of focused on their little small piece instead of trying to capture the entire picture and where the world is, is heading and how your technology can fit into whatever else is happening outside in the world. And that's that's when I'm, you know, uh, I, I admire those people that are able to put their focus into context. But if, if you're, if it's true that your platform is the real, the real shit, right? And, and we can do, or you can find uh, cures for all these diseases. How are you now planning to go what will be the next that you will solve i have a friend that has als i would love for you to solve that mm. Mm. there's nobody that's that's come even close to it mm. like there's a lot of people solving cancer mm. like how do you now as a leader look at what will be the next step 
Yeah, so I'm a I'm a big Jim Collins fan, I would say. So we we've gone through this process, right? So we focus, 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 get a few products uh, and prove that they work. Now I'm in this. Uh, we've been in this, you know, both trying to see the hedgehog, hedgehog principle, which is you know really where's your passion, where is there an a need, and and where's an economic sort of. Uh, a possibility um, where can you be best in class and f- try to figure that out first and that's where we've gone through multiple you know rounds to understand we have this platform technology but what are we actually best at mm. and what where should we focus so I can't say too much but Just but we have <laughs> you know we know a lot about this as I said in the beginning it's difficult to combine different genes and make it into a functional molecule and that expertise we can use for many different products so both obviously we have the platform and it's now in this flywheel period which is also a Jim Collins concept uh, where it takes a lot of energy to get it going in the beginning like that's it takes a lot uh, to push it forward but now it's spinning uh, and it's easier and easier and that's where we need to take advantage of the platform and just we can easily just swap the antigen for different uh, bacteria and viruses and make multiple new products and it's much lower risk than it was in the beginning but in addition we do have this core competence in how make complicated molecules actually being produced as functional molecules and that we can move also outside the direct uh, vaccine field uh, which we so are going exploring. down the road five years ahead i'm i'm, I'm hearing that uh Parts of what you're saying is is alluding to that, but um, where is Vaxibody in five years' time? How many employees are you? What are you solving? <laughs> where are we? Yeah, so that's my personal view, right? <laughs> then we are in multiple countries, not only uh, Norway and Denmark. We have um, several hundred employees, and we have multiple products in the in the clinic, both with cancer cancer field and infectious diseases field and other therapeutics areas that I cannot disclose today, but we have already started and other therapeutic modalities is what we say, but that's that goes back to what I said. We can we know how to create fancy molecules that we can use um, outside the vaccine field. And we have multiple partnerships, not only Genentech uh, for the fully personalized cancer vaccine projects, but we will continue to partner with people that can complement our strengths and bring things to the market and to the patients. So with that, we're going to close up uh, this uh, session. We always ask at the end, of the, I know they're serious, <laughs> thinking a lot about uh, this, um, this question, but also uh, throughout the session, what do you take away from today's discussion? It's you <laughs> learning arts a lot, but uh, do you, have you have you made some new reflections or? No, it's always nice to go back and think about the long journey and and think about you know what makes our people stay and contribute. I always feel grateful whenever I have the time to go back and just think about the entire story, and it helps to sharpen your your thoughts about the leadership and how to move forward. We do have a lot of these discussions internally. I have a very tight uh, collaboration with with Michael Engsig, which is the CEO, and we uh, we spend a lot of time just uh, trotting around this. Where are we? What have we done? What should we do? How should we do it? 
which I think is extremely important, um, a bit more challenging uh, with um, teams than uh, over dinner, but um, mm. very important that we have time to do that. And I really want other, you know, scientists to dare to take the, um, this step. It's challenging, but it's... Uh, Going commercial, you mean? Fun. Yeah. City. Mm. What, uh, what, what are you learned? I mean, do you have an hour? Yeah. <laughs> so two um, key takeaways. <laughs> well, I, I think, first of all, how complex this is. And, and even though I've been really, really listening, um, I, I didn't understand all of it. I must admit that. But I do understand the concept of it. And that fascinates me a lot. And I'm just sitting here thinking all the opportunities and, and the responsibility that lies with that. But in terms of, of learning, I think what impresses me the most is the fact that you never gave up through this long period. And that you don't seem even now when you have, uh, you could actually celebrate success in, in many ways, you don't seem uh, complacent at all. Like it, it, you are just, you look like you, you couldn't wait to do or you can't wait to do the next thing. Um, and, and that is also, I think it's so easy to become um, fat, fat and lazy, is that what you say? When, when you reach, when you get success after so many years of, of struggling, but you come across as exactly the opposite. So um, I can't wait to hear what's coming next, but I'm very curious on, on how you will focus forward and how fast you will grow. Yeah, I am absolutely profoundly intrigued by uh, by the work that you have uh, put into this and the future sure look bright. I am uh, incredibly proud that this comes from this little country of Norway and that you have actually, instead of following the trends, you have uh, you've become a game changer, which is all that we were after in this uh, in this podcast, trying to find who are our game changers and how do they operate. I think. We got a little bit of the answer of that today. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. This has been Game Changing Leadership, a podcast brought to you by Oslo Business Forum. We hope you enjoyed it. Share the podcast if you found it valuable and be sure to listen to our next episode if you want to discover more about game changers and what we can learn from them.